0: All right, Little Rock, grab your coffee, get jacked up. It's time for another episode of The Block Talk. I'm Jamie Taylor, and I'm so excited to be here today with Mr. Greg Henderson. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Well, I'm excited because we're here to talk about the Little Rock mayoral race, and that is something that you are quite busy with. So before we even get into that, let's start um, with you, who you are, what's your history in Little Rock, and what made you want to run for mayor?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up in central Arkansas, which is, you know, I I think anybody around central Arkansas kind of feels like Little Rock's a little bit at home. So you're always in and out. I mean, even growing up in the outskirts. So, I mean, it's, you know, as soon as I can get out of, you know, living with my parents, I moved straight to Little Rock. So it's been a while here. Um, I, You know, it's funny because we're sitting here in Aptogee, and I mean, entrepreneurship is a big part of kind of what I've always done and what I've always been a part of. And so, for me, I came out of college, um, had done marketing and trying to you know pay the bills to you know make sure my student loans weren't too high all the way through college. Um, Started working with several different small businesses, uh, restaurants in particular, and helping them grow their marketing, build websites for them enhancer digital presence when, you know, a time in the early 2000s when digital presence wasn't that big of a thing. Um, And so I worked through that and then didn't really want to get into marketing and business consulting. That wasn't my idea. I had a political science degree and wanted to go work for a couple of candidates. Um, That didn't work out uh, as political things don't always. And I started working for, you know, a local tech company here, um, spent a year there and then went into working with manufacturers across the state. So, you know, really from right out of, College. I've been working with small businesses, uh, the manufacturing companies. You know, worked through Economic Development Council, and you know, worked with small manufacturers, helping to grow them, helping to improve their processes, things like that. Doing a lot of business consulting, and finally went off on my own and started working with, uh, created Rock City Eats, so my own little entrepreneurial effort, um, and the whole Rock City, you know, sphere of things, which has turned into a whole lot. And then I, um, you know, started doing commercial real estate uh, about a year ago. So it's been fun.
0: That's so interesting to me, too, the mix, because I share not only your love for Little Rock, but the understanding of entrepreneurship, how that Mm -hmm. works. But then also it sounds like you're kind of sewing together the fabric of entrepreneurship and manufacturing, which are huge backbones Mm -hmm. of the community here in central Arkansas to Little Rock. But when it comes to how a city is run and how it operates, one of my big curiosities Mm -hmm. is sort of like, how does that all work? And if you are an uninformed voter, if you're a resident of Little Rock and you're not sure how the city's run, like, can you start with what's the difference between between, like what the mayor does the city manager and like the executive board and sort of how that looks in Little mm-hmm. Rock, how it's run and who makes decisions.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so Little Rock's kind of this weird hybrid model. Um, I don't know if you're you know familiar with it much, but I mean, it's this, there's really not many other models across the state that operate this way. Uh, I think there may be one. Uh, and then na- nationwide, I mean, we're in like the 5% category where there's just not that many where we have a city manager and a mayor um, and then a council or a board form of government, uh, which is really no different a council um, at the end of the day. Uh, Part of it is, is that, you know, I did some research on this several years ago, uh, trying to understand this hybrid form of government. And is it the best form of government for the city? Is it not? Typically what happens is, is you got cities that are smaller than about 50,000 seems to be the nice cutoff. And they tend to go with the city manager position. Uh, The idea is, is that there's there's such a small population in those cities that finding someone who has the executive credentials to actually run the city effectively um, gets pretty low. So typically they hire in a city manager and so that's not an elected position. Um, that's just a you know hired in executive position. So Bruce Moore is our city manager. Um, he maintains a good list of the executive responsibilities for the city. Um, he was hired in, um, even though we were well above that category of, you know, and there's no like hard cut you know, there's there's a few cities that are larger than you know. Well, in our population 000.
0: closer like two hundred fifty thousand, yeah. right? In Little oh, Rock proper, two hundred thousand, yeah, two hundred and
1: three, I believe is the technical okay. number. Yeah, but yeah, so I mean, we're well above that. Um, you know, and so most cities our size or larger, what you see as a mayor, because I mean, the idea is that again, you have a population big enough to support you know somebody that's within the city that can be elected that has the executive credentials to actually run a city. Um, Little Rock is weird in that you know we started off with. Um, a, you know, we had a city manager for a while, uh, the mayor was just sort of a part-time, you know, figurehead. And then, um, it transitioned into being a full-time mayor, which is, and also having a full-time city manager. So essentially we have two directors, uh, it'd be like having two presidents. Um, so we've got two executive directors in city hall, which is creates a lot of conflict, uh, and creates a lot of responsibility issues. I think the, the benefit of having a mayor is, is that, you know, that person is, you know, they report to the people of Little Rock. I mean, people of Little Rock can vote them in, vote them out, things like that. The city manager is really responsible to the city board um, or the city council, you know, in other cases, of other cities. So the city council, the city board is the one that hires the city manager, um, and can fire them ultimately,
0: things like that. Are the boards positions appointed or are they elected? They're
1: elected. So, uh, and and again, this is a weird Little Rock thing that we have, uh, as you'll find out that a lot of Little Rock things We have some things nuances are, in Little yeah, Rock, yeah. a lot yeah. of things are really, really, we just, we do things our own way. We beat our own drum. Uh, so we've got seven wards across the city uh, divided up equally. Uh, I forget the exact population. It's around- um, it's over 20,000 that each ward maintains, uh, but they're divided up roughly equally, um, right around you know the same number. There's, there's a small window of variance that's allowed for and it. it's redone just like Congressional districts, or just like you know, state legislative districts. Yeah, where, just you like know, when they, things fluctuate. Yeah, yeah. Whenever we get a new census in, right? they change up. You know, exact You know, they'll change up some lines, things like that. And so there's seven of those, uh, which is pretty typical in a city. Um, the thing that's not typical is we also have three at-large positions, and they're just elected citywide. Um, and so that's been kind of a point of con- conflict for a while. Is do these do these three positions actually represent the city, um, or do they just represent the people who have a lot of money and can get somebody elected into something like that? So that's, you know, it's a big point of contention. Um, I would say that I think that the city would probably be better served by reevaluating that, um, looking to see if do we really need these three at large positions? Can we do? There's been a couple models proposed. There's this sort of super ward idea where they each encompass about two and a half wards each, uh, kind of divide the city up and goes across wards. Um, there's been proposals on just eliminating them. There's been proposals on going to 10 city wards. Um, uh, but I think that at some point in probably the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to have to sit down and look at, you know, this is probably our form of government's probably not going to work forever. Having two executives, having these, you know, almost pseudo mayors in, you know, the at large positions to where, you know, they're elected the same as a mayor, um, in Iran in 2020 against Joan Adcock, who is also, uh, who is a citywide, you know, at large director. And I mean, that was one of the things I wanted to do then was I wanted to get in that seat intentionally to, you know, get rid of the citywide positions, because I thought that, you know, that was probably not the best for the city. Uh, But it's, you're never going to get the votes unless somebody on the board actually wants to vote against it.
0: Well, and it's interesting to kind of look at that because I, when I first did these interviews four years ago, when uh, Frank Work and Baker were running, I mm-hmm. really had no, you know, I, I moved to Little Rock. I'm originally from Southern California. So my ideas and sort of what I was used to is very different, kind of mm-hmm. shaken up. And so that was my first exposure to Little Rock and kind of how it was run. And then over the last few years, I've sort of tried to become more familiar with yeah. it so that I can really understand and mm-hmm. that we can use this platform to engage people to yeah. really kind of understand how Little Rock works. But when you, talk about population that makes me want to talk about population growth because that's our goal And Mm -hmm. so maybe when i said two hundred fifty thousand, i was projecting um but we'll get there someday yeah Yeah. and so what's your goal or what would your administration's goal be with respect to population growth and like how would you determine methods in which to execute (laughs) execute execute on that kind of thing
1: yeah i mean population growth i mean you know you can just like working with businesses i mean one of the things that i started helping businesses with was that they're you know there is the opportunity to grow too fast. Um, you know, we there were a couple of times where we would, you know, consult with a business, you know, get them a lot of traffic in. What we realized was that whenever all those people came in and all those customers came in, their processes couldn't handle it. Yeah, um, infrastructure And so, is, yeah. I mean, I've seen companies, not that I've done personally, let's <laughs> say that, um, but I've seen companies tank because they get too much, too many customers in and can't handle it. Uh, the same thing can happen for a city. I mean, we need to... We need to have strategic growth and we need to strategically plan how we're going to grow, what areas we're going to grow and what that population is going to do and how we're going to support them and things like that. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things that could happen is is that, you know, we look at urban sprawl is starting to happen. I mean, if you get, you know, we're constantly moving the boundary of Little Rock. And what happens is, is that we're lowering density as we go along, Um, lowering density. um, It hurts small businesses, lowering density. Hurts. Uh, I mean, impacts crime. Um, it impacts schooling. It impacts, you know, public safety as far as like fire response, uh, police response, things like that. The more we sprawl out, the harder some of those things become. And so what we need to do is strategically plan so that way we're supporting the growth in the right way. I think we need to focus on infill, uh, which if you're familiar with that term, Mm -hmm. uh, great. If not, it's kind of, for anybody listening, it's kind of the idea of, okay, let's not grow outward as much as we're going to grow inward. And so we're looking at vacant lots. Uh, We have a massive amount of vacant lots. Um, We have a list from the city that is called the um, Uninhabitable Vacant. Uh, list And it grows literally every time I pick it up. Um, it's constantly growing. And so what we have to do is find ways to fill in those areas. And what that's going to do is it's going to naturally reduce crime without having, you know, some of the impacts of, you know, needing extra police force. It's going to naturally enhance education by having, you know, more of a tax base to spin towards schools without actually having to go in and build new schools. It's going to, you know, help a lot of areas around and it's going to grow strategically without having the resources added onto the city. So I think that that's one of those areas where if we're going to look at growth and we got to look at growth. Have to do it smart and wise, and we have to plan for it properly.
0: Well, we both have children in the city, and so that kind of brings me. I was going to go yeah. a different direction, but when no, you said no, that, I wanted, you want. yeah, I was going to say I wanted to pull this question. Up. That's why I love about having conversational <laughs> podcasts is because really, eight thousand is the closest number right now. Nearly eight thousand mm-hmm. vacant parcels yeah. in the city of Little Rock, and so that's where I, you know, I question and I wonder, especially with respect to mm-hmm. outside money and outside investment, like. What? how do you feel about that? Are we unified on the idea that like outside money is also good for Little Rock? And like, how do we control that mm-hmm. kind of development like you're talking about? So that, you know, situations like like Austin is a great yeah. example of like, hey, we're dealing with boil orders and blackouts because our infrastructure wasn't prepared mm-hmm. for a rapid amount of growth in that amount of time. So how do we both avoid those kind of issues? And what sort of plans would you have to handle those vacant lots and uninhabitable properties?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we've actually been working, um, I've got a, one of my Close Advisors is also a lawyer that understands tax law very strategically. And so one of the things that you have to be aware of is that, you know, those vacant lots and, you know, uninhabited vacant buildings that are, you know, in the middle of falling apart, those nine times out of 10 are not paying any property taxes. Um, and so what's happened is, is that the tax bill is racked up on them. And in order to buy those, sometimes, depending on the situation, you've got to go pay that tax bill off. And so what we're looking at is a plan to um, get in and waive that tax bill. That's never going to get paid. Let's be honest. It's a barrier to purchasing one of the slots. But also, we want to set a certain, a certain group of criteria to where you know we want... You know, we want houses that are affordable. We want houses that are lived in, not just rental houses. You know, we want houses that are, you know, energy efficient, sustainable, things like that. And so what I think we could do is come up with a set of criteria, and that's kind of what we're working toward. If We can come up with a set of criteria where if a developer wanted to come in, purchase one of those lots, take one of those houses and rehab it, whatever, and there's great... There's great things with rehabbing houses because you can also do historic tax credits which help offset yeah, the Yeah, don't price make me change
0: channels to the I Hate Real Estate podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes,
1: please. Uh, but I mean, it's a lot of things that's uh, getting in real estate's helped me learn these things. So what yeah. we can do is I think anyway, and I've got my tax lawyers looking at it and things like that and I think we're pretty we're pretty good to go on it. It's been a hesitant throwing it out there yet. So you're actually the first one to hear this plan. But what I think we could do is we can say okay, well you go buy one of these lots, you go buy one of these houses that are falling in, rehab it, build on it, whatever we need to do to infill. And what we're going to do
0: is we're going to waive property taxes from the city for 10 years. Yeah, which is um, a, which is like from an investment standpoint yeah. just like personal comment that's a great yeah. opportunity because if they're not paying taxes on mm-hmm. it already, you're still having to maintain mm-hmm. it, right? So the city yeah. still has to mow these lots, right? And mm-hmm. keep and then go tag them. And yeah,
1: yeah. So it cost us city resources. Uh, not only that, I mean, you know, especially when you look at unsafe vacant houses, you know, we had a big string as a couple of years ago, uh, downtown anyway, I'm a downtowner. Um, and of people getting in these houses, uh, you know, lighting fires to stay warm, and several of these properties burned down, there was think uh, believe about 10 or so between the downtown and central high district that burned down uh, because people would get in and set fires on them because they're vacant and they knew that they're vacant. Uh, We lost like four or five just right around my house. Uh, There was over 10 of them that burned down. And, you know, it's.
0: And it's sad. Yeah, it's sad. Those are historical home districts as well. It's
1: sad. Um, There's a number of them that have become drug houses. um, Unfortunately, there's a number of them that have, you know, you know, there's, there's all kinds of activity going on in those houses. And so if you can fill those in and also get neighbors that are in, that's that's part of the thought process of they actually have to be inhabited by somebody living mm-hmm. here. They can't just be like, you know, uh, Airbnb house where some you know where you got this constant revolving thing because what we want to build is stronger neighborhoods through this process. So, you know, we want people that are actually there. And what we've found in other neighborhoods is that, you know, when people are actually there and people are involved in the neighborhood and people take ownership of the neighborhood, crime goes down dramatically. And so that's one way where we can, you know, and there's several different ways we can do crime, but that's one of the main ways we can reduce crime is trying to just get more eyes and ears in the neighborhood, you know, fill in some of these vacant lots, fill in some of these, you know, places that are, you know, constantly breeding crime and constantly, you know, becoming a public safety issue. Uh,
0: well, and that's and I appreciate the sentiments towards the real estate, you know, being something that can solve that problem. And it's interesting to hear you say that, just because there's a, a great example of something that happened with an outside investor here was um, he purchased an apartment complex down off of near where the substation is on Scott Street. Mm-hmm. And when he purchased that property, we had a we had a pretty open conversation about. He said, you know, I don't understand it. I come here to Little Rock, and the pro- property prices look like I should be investing here. Yeah. I have some concerns about X, Y, and Z, which are concerns. Hopefully, we'll get to here in just a minute, but. When we started to talk, one of the things I explained to him is like, as a real estate professional in the city at the time, I was like, I don't want you to buy this property and then stay you know, in your area not mm-hmm. not do anything with it because those dollars don't make sense for my community unless you're going to be engaged in that and build into the neighborhood. And so what's been interesting is that deal was sort of constructed around the idea that he was going to have to move here mm-hmm. and be a part of this community. And it's it's been really interesting to watch that happen because he since has moved here and become an investor and has changed a lot mm-hmm. of the, the area around him by doing what you're talking yeah. about. Uh, when we spoke last night, I was speaking to him on the phone and I said, as a commercial developer developer, someone who came to our city, you know, you're young, you're full of energy, you want to do this. What was the bar? Like what kept you out? And then what also keeps you here? And he shared some of those sentiments with me. Um, One of the things he said that that spoke to me was that he felt like there were some barriers to execution with his trying to, you know, permit this property and update Mm -hmm. this property. And so how do you feel about commercial development? As overall, does this something that we really need to start doing more of on an aggressive basis? And then to that, speaking to that, why does it seem to be so difficult to do in the city of Little Rock?
1: Yeah. And let me, and I'll I'll answer it in a roundabout way, because I think that you hit on something actually that's more important there than the actual question itself. But sorry for taking your no, that's great. direction somewhere. But one of the things that I've found is just that I've worked, you know, worked with literally thousands of businesses across the state um, over my, you know, 20 years of doing business and one thing that constantly comes up if I have somebody who's done a lot of business outside the city, uh, especially other areas of the state, and then comes into Little Rock and does business is that Little Rock, is, they will consistently tell me Little Rock is the hardest place to open up a business they've ever done. Um, part of it is, is that, you know, we don't have a single point person to go to and say, okay, this, you need to do X, Y, and Z. Here's your checklist. Do this. We'll open up your business. Um, you've got multiple points of contact. You've got multiple conflicting views. Sometimes you'll go to one person, they'll tell you one thing. And then the person that inspects it tells you something different and you're delayed on inspection. Um, I had one business that, um, ultimately had to close down as a result of it. Uh, they were over a year behind getting open from where they wanted to. The business was ready, but just the constant changing of you know, requirements, constant changing of information, the constant changing of everything to do with opening up the business put them back over a year opening up. Um, ultimately, what that led to was they were $400,000 in the hole before they ever even got opened. Um, Trying to overcome that is nearly impossible. And that's why, you know, Little Rock, I think that we maintain a better rate because we're typically independently owned businesses here, uh, by and large, compared to other cities. Um, You know, so we don't have as many closures, but the ones that do fail tend to be they're just in too big of a hole to get started. Um, One of the things I think we need to do is we need to streamline the approach of, you know, hey, I want to open up a business, you know, there needs to be a point person or two in the city where, you know, they say, okay, well, we're going to walk you through that. We need to be very small business friendly. The big businesses figure this out and they don't care because they've got a team of people who work it through, but our small businesses don't. We need to be small business focused. Um, So like in the case with your guy, I mean, if we would have had one point person in the city, you know, our small business consultant or whatever you want to call it um, as a part of a broader economic development um, committee, which Several other cities in Arkansas have um, that's becoming a big thing, and you know cities like Austin, um, Chattanooga, stuff like that. They have these sort of you know internal economic development bases, and they have small business consultants within them, and so really they kind of walk somebody through the process of doing it and try to speed up getting to open as fast as possible while still meeting the requirements of the city. And I think that that's something we really need to look at. Um, I think we could easily shift resources around. I mean, the executive office, for example, has grown dramatically under you know the current leadership. And I think that we could shift some of those positions over to being more of an economic driven model to where we're, we're helping our small businesses get in. We're helping them get open. We're being pro business as far as, especially with small businesses to where we're trying desperately to get in with them. And then not once they're in, um, and this is going to be my economic development hat sliding on. Um, one of the things we also have to do is we need to spend more of our resources toward um, sort of this, you know, growth and retention of uh, it. In the economic development world, it's called retention and expansion. And so the idea is, is that we're going to focus more on helping AptiG here continue to grow their business than we are bringing some new business in that's just going to take employees away from AptiG. Um if you look at what's happened to like, say I'm like they're
0: uh, not taking them from me. No, I'm no, no, no. But
1: I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, looking at economic development and I mean, and I know this is totally different than what you're asking. So I apologize. No, I no, time. it's
0: great because I'm um, like, like, I have a perfect follow-up question yeah. for that. It makes perfect sense.
1: Yeah. So when you look at economic development, I mean, yeah, it's real sexy to say, okay, well, we brought in Amazon and they hired a thousand new jobs. Well, whenever our unemployment rates at 3.5, which is effectively zero, I mean, because you're never going to get down to zero, 3.5 somewhere between, you know, three and 3.5 is a pretty standard, healthy unemployment rate. Um, you're not bringing in, you're not pulling jobs for people who weren't working at that point. What you're doing is you're pulling jobs from other folks. And so, you know, if if Amazon wanted to, say, develop a tech center, what they would do is they're like, okay, well, we've got a few trillion dollars and we can sprinkle a few on Little Rock. And so what they would do is they would look at what's the average rates of you know, what, what are people getting paid at G for example, if that's what they wanted to pull from. And so they would pay them, you know, a couple thousand more and throw them a recruitment bonus on. And so they're going to pull employees away from here to go over there and work. And then as soon as that doesn't make an economic sense for them to be located in this area, they're just going to close up because, you know, the the gain that they have over the time they're open way offsets the loss of closing up. And so, but what happens is, is that, you know, a company like Aptogee, well, They've just gutted us, you know, a quarter of our employees and pulled them over there because they paid them a little bit more and gave them a sign-on bonus. And so they didn't really create any jobs. They just shifted jobs over to big business and took away from some of these small independent firms. And so if that's our business approach and if that's our city economic development approach where we're looking at bringing in big businesses, whether it's Amazon, if it's, you know – um, top golf, could grief. Don't even get me started on that. Um, you know, things like that, they're just pulling from small businesses. Yes, it's nice and sexy to say, hey, we brought in a thousand jobs. It's not nice and sexy to say, oh, well, we helped AptaG retain all their employees and added two new ones. That's not as sexy, but actually that's a job growth, whereas the other one isn't.
0: Well, and and since you did bring up AptoGee, that is where we are today. We're we're filming here on the Unicorns premises. And what's interesting <laughs> for me is that, like we talked about before the show, I was always an entrepreneur before mm-hmm. I I fell in line with this corporate. Company and what's interesting about us is we are a startup that was yeah. founded here in Little Rock. And so when you talk about companies like Aptogee and you talk about places like the Venture Center, many people don't realize that Little Rock is really the leader when it comes to global financial technology. And we have the accelerators that are recognized around the globe for the work that Wayne Miller and Mimi San Pedro and their team do over there. Um, but with respect to that, when you're looking at that, how do we encourage an atmosphere of entrepreneurship like that where you can see the end result of something like this and say, mm-hmm. "Hey, that was possible to do in Little Rock"? Because the truth of the matter is, like this is kind of a unicorn. You walk in here and you think, well, how did this happen? How this happened was somebody had an incredibly good idea and was in the atmosphere and the ability to come into a city Mm -hmm. like this and create that and a culture around it that does help us go ahead. But like you said, growth and retention, that's a hard thing to do. Yeah. Growth and retention is hard, but it's only hard because
1: we make it hard. Um, The more we focus in on entrepreneurship, that's that's really the gold standard. You know, we don't want a to top golf here from my administration. What we want is we want to build the next top golf. It's so much more impactful to have you know a business, a homegrown business, startup here, retained here, have you know kind of this vested interest in the community. Um, if you look at you know even way down the line of you know some of these bigger businesses here, I mean, look back to Altel, look back to Axiom. You know, a lot of those came out of that, uh, and it's because we at that time, were able to foster and grow those companies. Uh, some haven't worked out, uh, I would say Dillard's doesn't, you know, support, you know, the entrepreneurial growth. But, you know, certainly a lot of the current crop of businesses, especially in the fintech world, came out of – you know, entrepreneurship came out of that. I mean, it came out of growing all which was at one point an entrepreneurship. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's all about planting seeds. And I think that that's, what's important and not all your seeds are going to grow. I mean, if you've ever been a gardener, you know, you plant seeds, they don't all grow. Sometimes I get ate by squirrels, which is the case of all my tomatoes this year. <laughs> um, but, you know, Some of them do. And when they grow, they sprout new seeds. Uh, And so I think that that's one of the things that's important. And you also got to look at, you know, the relationship between a company and a city. Um, And that's something where... You know, working across the state, especially in the manufacturing world, we saw a lot. You know, you have companies like Whirlpool, for example. So we did a lot of work back with Whirlpool and Fort Smith. Um, and whenever they left that city, because they weren't vested. I mean, they were vested, but only to a certain degree. Uh, they were only vested to the point where it made financial sense for them in that in Fort Smith. When they left, it killed half the workforce there. I mean, it, it really impacted that city hard. Um, versus whenever – because what they had was they had workers there. They had people who were trained on a certain process, putting a certain thing together, and they never fostered that group. They never grew them because their headquarters weren't there. Why would they? Um, They're going to move them to the headquarters. Whereas you look at Altel, you know, yeah, they had people who started off on the bottom floor, but they were – but this was the headquarters. And so we're constantly growing and training and introducing them to new ideas. And a lot of them float off and do their own thing, and that's really cool, and that really helps – Our city, if you, you know, the comparison we get all the time is Northwest Arkansas. And they're like, oh, well, we don't have Walton money. I'm like, no, but we have the opportunity to create Walton money. There's no reason why we don't. We just got to invest in the small businesses that are here, help them grow to the point where we do have 10 Walton monies.
0: Hi, I'm Jamie Taylor, host of the Block Talk podcast. These mayoral interviews wouldn't have been possible without the gracious support of our sponsor. When you build a property with Mike Orndorff Properties, what you can expect is development done differently. This is a developer who connects people to their places and creates a space where you can live simply. If you want more information, check them out on Facebook. Yeah, um, it's funny that you just said that too, because you're going to have to hold back like my, That's like, I just <laughs> want to go off when I yeah. hear that too, because Central Arkansas has so much to offer. And we do have things Mm -hmm. like AptoGee that come out of here and we're able to grow them because there are the opportunities and and advantages of growing in the central Arkansas area. We have a very low median home price. We have the ability for people to come and be at a part of more walkable communities. What's going on in Pedaway and Soma is very beautiful. Mm -hmm. We have these opportunities to attract and maintain and retain people and talent who want to be a part of an infrastructure in Mm -hmm. a city that's looking to grow and expand over the next several years. But I just continue to say that you know we are the last, in my opinion, mid-sized city in the United States that has all of this potential for growth, and we haven't maxed ourselves out of our price no. range either when it comes to style of living and everything. So, when it comes down to that, one of the other things I want to know about is public and private partnerships because it's very important, um, in my opinion, anyways, that they further expand um, the city of Little Rock. So, as it relates to public-private partnerships, you know, what are your feelings on that? Do we need to do more of it, less of it, and how does it engage your city to grow?
1: I think asking if we need to do more of it would be thinking that we actually do any of it at all, which is not the case. Um, So let's be real clear there. Um, I mean, realistically, yeah. I mean, so we need, it's not just about the money. It it is about the money, but it's not just about the money. I mean, it's about having, you know, these companies like an AptoG or, you know, like an Altel back in the day, um, you know, take ownership in the city. I mean, it allows them to say, you know, we got some pride here and here's where we planted that pride. Here's where, you know, we helped this area at. Here's where we continue to grow our city. And I think that that has to happen. Um, yes, we don't have the budget to handle everything we need right now. Um, we've got a huge investment needed for parks right now. We have a huge investment needed for infrastructure right now. We have a huge investment needed for all kinds of areas. And we just simply don't have the money. I mean, if you're looking at city budget, it's just not there. I mean, for the areas that we need to grow, it's not there right now. but Leveraging some of these public-private partnerships is a nice way to close that gap. But more than that, it helps them have a stake in the city and helps them, you know, firmly plant themselves here. I think, you know, the fintech world, yes, but I mean, also look at what's going on in banking. I mean, you have Bank OZK building huge headquarters. Simmons making, you know, really their move here and making Little Rock their home. I mean, there's so much. And then you've got kind of the balance between the two. Yeah, we got great fintech and we got great financing. I mean, it's really fascinating what's happening in Little Rock and we can be sort of that hub for it. But we need to make sure that we keep them there. I mean, you know, Simmons just acquired a huge thing out of Dallas. Uh, They've also got huge investments in Florida and other places. You know, we need to make sure that Little Rock is their home and their roots are firmly planted here. And one of the ways to do that is through public-private partnerships. Um, But I mean, also, too, it benefits them to have this type of stuff. Um, I, I still recall... Early on in my, you know, getting into restaurant world, I had a meeting up in Bentonville and was talking to some of the folks who, you know, later, you know, were representing the Waltons and representing, you know, their huge cash flow that they've ended up spending up there. And they were like, yeah, we want to make Bentonville a cool town and we want to like do this and we want to do that. We want to really breed this nice culture. And I was like, why? That doesn't make any sense. This is Bentonville. Have you looked around? I mean, at the time, there was nothing at all. I mean, it was Bentonville was kind of a dead town at the time. And they're like, well, because what we're doing is we're losing out to anytime we bring in, you know, somebody we're trying to hire, some big executive who has bright ideas and a bright future, you know, what we're losing out to is we're losing out to the Southern Cows. Uh, We're losing out to Austin. We're losing out to places where there's this culture and they don't necessarily care about the job. And that's, it's a big difference in economic development. Um, People who are smart and talented are less concerned about the job than they are about where they live and where they're oh, going to grow think. up and the culture around the city. And so I think that that's one of the things where investing in these public pr- partnerships and trying to actively form them and trying to actively cultivate them and grow them helps them attract new employees, too, because then they can say, OK, well, look at this beautiful park that's over here by our campus. You know, look at, you know, say it's Aptogee and we want to invest in the River Trail. I mean, you know. And
0: oh, we do. We invest Visa, our bikes yeah, are yeah. back here, actually, yeah. parked right there. Yeah, and
1: Visa, <laughs> But I mean, you know you know, what would happen if this grew into being, you know, a multi-billion dollar company and they wanted to invest, you know, a billion or two in this trail? And can you imagine how awesome that would be? And then they can bring in a new recruit here and say, look, you know, we helped with this. We're invested in this community. This is a cool place to live because we helped make it a cool place to live. Right. The value of the company is going to skyrocket at that point. Uh, and so it's Important to invest in that. And then it's just this loop where we're always, you know, we're growing a company, they're investing, they're growing some more, they're investing, they're growing some more. And it creates this cool loop to where, you know, we all of a sudden have this thriving city that looks a lot like an Austin, uh, looks a lot like a Chattanooga, things like that. And there's absolutely no reason why Little Rock cannot look like those
0: Great American yeah, city. I mean, right. it's,
1: there's no reason at all. I mean, we have everything we need here. It's just a matter of cultivating it correctly.
0: Right. Just kind of rearranging it. And it's interesting because you kind of touch on culture. And that makes me think about the citizenry and like how Little Rock is. And when you live here in Little Rock and you're not familiar, if you don't live here, if you're not familiar with the way it works, like when COVID hit, one of my favorite stories from that was we have mutual friend that owns a mm-hmm. coffee shop downtown yep. on the corner. And, and it was just Almost so,
1: stopped there this morning. We went to Fidel and stuff. Yeah, but so. the, the thing is you have a yeah. wide
0: range of locally owned coffee shops that brew great coffee. <laughs> yeah. So you're good to go. But what's interesting is on that corner, um, what I noticed when COVID hit and restaurants were having a really hard time is that people were running around buying gift cards from those local companies Mm -hmm. to make sure that they were sustained through that process. And so as I saw that happen, I thought, well, this is supposed to be a big capital city, but it's really a small town where Mm -hmm. everybody's had each other's back and kind of worked through our challenges as small business owners and community influencers. And so with respect to that, how do we unify a culture and a community, and especially in today's times where sometimes things are sensitive or difficult to talk about, um, it feels like when you live here and you're part of the fabric, yeah, it's a great place to live. The people are wonderful. But if you're an outsider looking in and you see some of the issues we're facing, how do we unify our city and our culture when it just comes to the feeling and the vibe, hey, I'm from central Arkansas? Yeah. You know, I think a lot of what's
1: happened um, and, you know, not to be overly political, but I mean, I think a lot of what's happened is, is that we've got, we've got a big divide right now in Little Rock. Um, I mean, even if you look at, you know, not, not trying to bash anybody because that's really not my style. But if you look at the other two candidates, I mean, you have one candidate saying, oh, well, you know, I want this to grow. And then you've got the other candidate saying, I want the complete opposite to grow. And I mean, really what we need is those ideas to merge in together. Uh, We need to say, okay, we want to grow the whole city. Yes, we've got to start with the parts that have been historically neglected first. Um, I mean, if we're being real honest, I mean, Little Rock from the very foundation of Little Rock. We've had parts of the city that have been historically underserved, historically neglected, things like that. We've got to rise from the bottom. We can't just keep topping off. We've got to start filling up from the bottom some. And so yes, we need to shift finances and resources to help grow some of those, you know, communities, help grow some of the areas that have been just very historically underserved and they've got to be at a higher rate than what some of the areas that have been historically prosperous get. Um, And that's, you know, a complicated conversation and it's, it, nobody ever really likes that conversation, but it's the, really is the truth. Um, You know, so I think that, you know, we've got to work on, you know, building up from the bottom first, uh, but then also at the same time trying to bridge gaps. Uh, The problem is, is that Little Rock has a history of continuing divides, uh, you know, and we do it both, Physically and you know just mentally, uh, but physically we've got to stop that too. Uh, we've got to stop. Uh, I'm a big, um, how do I say this nicely? Um, I don't like what we've allowed groups like our DOT to come in and do uh, the Arkansas Department of Transportation uh, because what they've done is they've continuously widened the physical gap between the areas of the city. Um, if you look at what they've done on 6:30, um, you know 6:30 in the beginning is terrible uh what they're doing now on 30 it's creating even larger divide there and so what we've got to do is we've got to both mentally and physically bridge those divides and so i think that there's some you know there's some growing sentiment especially some of us that live downtown that you know we've got to stop this continuous expansion otherwise we're going to have a gulf between the areas of the city that's really too wide to too wide to divide and so i think that that's a lot of it too we've got to start fighting back against Department of Transportation, start trying to tear down some of that and then start working on crossing culture a little bit, start working on, you know, let's, you know, let's get people to, I'm a big, I don't know, I'm a big believer in, you know, we spend a whole lot of money from the AMP commission, which is advertising promotion. So basically we take 2% off of hotel visits and, um, any restaurants we eat at. And then what we do is what that's supposed to do is supposed to go back to promote, other restaurants and other hotels in the city to encourage development. What that typically means is that we're spending a whole lot of money on Robinson, um, which is a point of contention. What I'd love to see is us focus on this, let's build a campaign of this sort of internal tourism. Let's get people from West Little Rock to go downtown. Let's get people from downtown to go to Southwest. Let's get this cross traffic going on and let's work on doing this sort of internal tourism I did where we get people going to other areas of the city. Cause I mean, what happens is if you're living, you know, way out in West Little Rock, and this is part of the messaging points that I don't agree with some of my other candidates, or some other opponents is that, I mean, we can't be scared of our city. We can't have people from West Little Rock scared to go downtown because it's not a scary place. I, I live downtown, it is not scary. I've never once felt unsafe. There's crime, yes, uh, but we can work on preventing that. But even whenever there's not crime, people were still scared to go downtown. So well, we've got to work on getting people to get out and mix a little bit more and see other areas of the city.
0: Well, and it's interesting that you brought it up in that way because when I think about like the original effects of redlining and the f- and the, the original infrastructure and the way the freeways were built and all those things, like there is a lot of misunderstanding in how that can be um, rectified and how neighborhoods can change. Like if you don't have a lot of economic understanding, it really starts with like the school in the neighborhood and then it starts with the resources in the neighborhood and the ability to have a happy, good quality of life mm-hmm. in different areas of the city. Typically, and, and this one is really close to home, for me, anyone that knows me personally knows I spend a lot of time in the southwest area of the city, yes. um, spend a lot of time in, in each area of the city, to be totally honest. And what really gets me is what you're saying. Some people will say like, hey, I don't want to go to that area of town. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in investing in that area of town. For me, in total and truth and honesty, I did not speak a word of Spanish three years ago. I didn't have any real true interest or investment in that area of the community until I saw what was going on there. And what I saw was a, a, a huge person of our, a portion of our workforce, uh, a vibrant community with a lot to say. And I also noticed that there was a a real lack of resources when it came to, um, you know, and and not trashing anybody either. But when it came down to the city, the Chamber of Commerce, the Conventions Bureau, there's all these different places where you're supposed to be able to go as a small business who is taxed and licensed through the city, but they don't have resources in your Mm -hmm. language. And so in order to be an inclusive community and make everyone feel included, like, what is your administration's plan or your plan to be able to unify that message and say, look, if you want to live here in Little Rock, you can speak Spanish or English or Vietnamese, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter, we're going to find a way to get you the resources you need to feel at home here in Little Rock.
1: Yeah, certainly. And, and I think it it helps to look at some historic context of this. Um, in In 2010, um, the 2010 census, we had roughly about 6% Hispanic. Um, in 2020, we were up over 10 Um, If you go way back to 2000, we were down around 3%. So what's happening effectively is we're doubling the Hispanic population every single census year, um, every 10 years. And so I think a lot of it is, is that, I mean, you've also got city directors that have been in there for 30 years. And so when they got into office, you know, the Hispanic population was, you know, one half percent, something like that, you know, I don't think that they've understood, essentially how much that population has grown and how important it is to the city. Um, if it keeps growing at this rate, I mean, the Hispanic population will be a considerable size of the city. Um, and so, yeah, we have to make sure that we have resources. We make have to make sure that we have the right attitude toward the Hispanic population. They're not marginalized. We can't do that. Uh, they're not a small fraction of the population anymore. They're a sizable portion of the population. And so we have to make sure that we understand that and we have to readjust our attitudes toward the Hispanic community. Um, I don't speak Spanish either. I, my wife gives me a hard time all the time because I felt Spanish in college Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I just, but I mean, it, that doesn't matter. I mean, just because, you know, we don't speak Spanish. And I think that's a lot of what's going on is that, you know, as a, you know, as a city director right now, you know, you, Don't speak Spanish. You're not Spanish yourself as a mayor. You don't speak Spanish. You're not Spanish yourself. It's easy to not think about those people who do because they're not like you. Uh, I think I think that's a little bit getting outside of your comfort zone. You have to make sure that, you know, hey, I'm I'm going in those areas where these people They don't speak the same language as me. They're not like me, but they're still people of Little Rock, and they're still citizens of Little Rock, and we have to make sure that we're taking care of them just as much as we are everybody else.
0: Well, and that's where I get – I mean, I just got kind Mm -hmm. of like goosebumpy when you said that, though, because that's one of the things that really like I didn't – I do now in the sense that like I didn't know how to make those connections either. And so I found myself – a friend Mm -hmm. of mine was like, well, just go to the Mercados, like learn, go to the grocery Mm -hmm. store check out, you know, try to figure it out. And so the more and more I explored through that town, I realized that that barrier of language, really just a couple words, just the effort to try, Mm -hmm. just being there that whole community responded back to me with Mm -hmm. like love and open arms and, hey, we do want to be part of this city and have just answered the call at every turn to continue to build businesses and grow themselves. And so I guess what I say, what I really seem to understand about the differences between different communities, not just the Hispanic community, but everybody who lives in Little Rock is there's kind of seems to be a lack of good communication or maybe miscommunication Mm -hmm. between what the expectations are with our code enforcement and our city officers and the people that are out there looking at those properties and the people that own them and or rent them. And so talk to me a little bit about how do we communicate effectively with everybody across the board, with code enforcement, with the city, how you're supposed to maintain your home, what the rules and laws are about that. How do you sort of unify that approach and that message to our residents to make sure everyone's on the same page and has the same understanding?
1: Yeah, yeah, and so I think first and foremost, it needs to be said, there's some really good code enforcement officers out there. Um, There's some really good police officers out there. There's really good people in every group that try to take a more community-oriented approach. Um, but sadly, I think overall as a group, I mean, you know, when you see a code officer, you think, oh, I'm getting a ticket for something They're They're writing me up for some code violation. And, and I've actually, oddly enough for the weirdest six months of my life was a code officer at one point. So <laughs> not for the city of Little Rock, but I mean, I, can't even, I, like- I understand what they go through. And I mean, so you're being like, you're, you know, being told, okay, well, you know, take action on this you know let's do this let's do that you know and it's always action oriented i mean it's the same thing with the police force i mean you know police in its traditional sense is going out and enforcing crimes or enforcing, you know, violations of crimes. So, I mean, if somebody, you know, whether it's a speeding ticket, I mean, your interaction with the police is because you were going too fast. Uh, You know, if it's a, you know, arrest, you've done something against the law, that's your interaction with the police force. What we've got to do is we've got to change our interactions. It's not about, you know, just going out and enforcing and that's, you know, whether it's a code officer who is enforcing violations or if it's a police officer who is enforcing, you know, violations, we have to take a different approach and, get out there and get to know the community. I think that it's just a matter of, you know, we have to take this community oriented approach in everything that we do, not just, you know, not just those two specific categories, we've got to get out there, meet with the community, talk with them. I mean, I, I, my dream would be for, you know, police to roll up and kids come, you know, running to them, you know, seeing what's going on, you know, things like that. Not everybody running away scared. Um, same thing with code. I mean, it's like, I, you know, I've got a couple officers who code officers who I know get out and they they have their territories um, and they get out and they walk and they talk to the neighbors and things like that you know they they're really involved with the community aspect of it and I think that that's what's needed I think we need to Reward those officers who are taking that community oriented approach. We need to redefine how we measure officers. It's not just about, you know, hey, here's how many arrests you had, here's how many tickets you wrote, things like that. It's, okay, well, did you did you talk to this many people in the yeah, community? How many lives today? did you impact, right? Yeah, how many people did you actually impact? It, it, it's a lot about metrics. Um, that's one of the things, again, I worked for, um, it was a partnership with ADC. Um, I worked at Winrock International, but it was just a a grant project for me, Um, you know, but I worked under ADC. I worked under, you know, a National Institute of Manufacturing. Um, And so we had metrics we had to report. And what happens is the way you handle your job is based on the metrics you have to report. And so if we can change those metrics, we can change the way our officers, the way our community, you know, my, work. my
0: son's trying to do that right now at Catholic High as a freshman, and he's trying to get them to change the criteria in which they grade his homework, because that way <laughs> it'd be easier. But yeah. so far, his campaign is not going well. So probably not. you're doing better than he is. Um, but that being said, you know, you brought up the police. And so mm-hmm. moving from code enforcement and sort of the delivery and the messaging um, into the police, I actually have a friend who's a who's a. Lieutenant with the police department Mm -hmm. who um, speaks Spanish is bilingual and kind of is one of those police officers who really sets an example. He's Mm -hmm. engaged with his community. Um, But one of the things we discussed recently was that we do have a steady decline in the number of officers who are interested in working for the police department. We have some differently constructed police departments in neighborhoods in different cities around us, North Little Rock to be one to look at. Um, With the conditions that are present in the Little Rock Police Department – how do we handle that and deal with it? Because there seems to be a lot of controversy based on every different candidate's position as it relates to Little Rock crime and police. So let's just get your view and kind of position on all that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think the first question to ask is, I mean, why would you be a Little Rock police officer? I mean, what's what would make you become a Little Rock police officer? I mean, if you look at it on the surface, you know, we've got. He's gone now, but we had a chief who was suing the police department, a police department that was suing the chief, different fractions within it. They all seem like they don't like each other very much. Uh, You know, you're underpaid, understaffed. Why would you become a Little Rock police officer? We've got to start changing that conversation. We've got to start changing it to be, why wouldn't you be a Little Rock police officer? We have this unified idea and we're all going in the same direction. We're all helping people rather than, you know, arresting people. We're all trying to do a job together and we're supporting each other. We're, you know, we know the mayor's got our back. We know the city council's got our back. We know those things happen. You know, why wouldn't you be? And that's kind of the conversation we have to have because right now it's, why would you be? And that's the conversation North Little Rock's having with us, the state police are having with us, Capitol Police are having with us, is they're going in and talking to our Little Rock police officers like, why are you still there? And that's part of the conversation we had to change. We got to bridge some of these gaps that are happening right now.
0: Well, in a state of emergency is a scary place to be. And we've yeah. been there with relation to education, we've been there with relation to crime. And so as mm-hmm. a city, we've really had to combat some of those two. But those are the two biggest issues when you're talking to somebody outside. Absolutely. Um, somebody like myself who moves here mm-hmm. from Southern California, you're like, Hey, what are your biggest concerns as a parent, as a professional? You know, if you're looking at those mm-hmm. things and you don't live here, you don't have that understanding of like, yes, you can walk down the street. It's it doesn't it sounds it's, so much different yeah. than it is. However, when I think about that, I think about when I Grew up, I looked at policing differently than I do as an adult. Mm -hmm. And sure, there's a lot of nuances and things in that conversation to be had. But at the end of the day, what it used to be is a revered, you know, position within the community where these people solve problems for you. And I don't know about you, but like when I had a big seizure or when I get in a car accident, like I don't call my mom; I call 911. You know, so these people are dealing with more than just police issues. Mm -hmm. They're dealing with car accidents and traffic citations and all of those things. And so I think it's an overreaching subject that's really going to have to be talked about a lot. The more that this race goes on, to figure out how do we do that collectively yeah. get people excited on on board.
1: Yeah. And there's two problems right now. I mean, and we've got to solve both of them at the same time, which is incredibly difficult. Well, really three problems, but it all boils down to two problems. A, we, yes, we do. And we have to admit that we do have a crime issue right now. When crime is so high, it impacts other areas like that. Uh, I mean, so, you know, it impacts response time on accidents. It impacts, you know, every other police activity When they're having to respond to so many crimes, especially when you're short staffed, you're, you know, pulling, you know, sometimes, you know, 14, 15 hour shifts, things like that that are happening right now in the police department. So we have to address the immediacy of the problem and we have to fill those positions. We have to try to find a way to reduce crime. Uh, Another one of the areas that I've talked about a lot, but I don't hear anybody else talking about is, you know, 911 and non-emergency services. Um, A lot of times those phones are going unanswered and there's been a lot of excuses from the city, but they're going unanswered. I mean, let's just be real honest about it. So if you were in an accident and wanted to call 911 right now, there's a good chance you wouldn't get through. So you're going to have to sit there for a while until you can finally get through. Um, Where it really comes into play is it's okay. So, you know, let's say I'm a, there's been a lot of shootings at gas stations, for instance, let's say my gas station owner. And I see, you know, a couple out there getting into an argument, which is how most of these gas station shootings have started. And I try to call 911, which several of them have, and they don't get through. Or I try to call the non-emergency number and they don't get through. That crime escalates from being, you know, non-violent or a non-crime whatsoever to all of a sudden being a violent crime. Um, And so this escalation that's happening because a lot of times our numbers just aren't going through. They're not being answered. Uh, And so a lot of, we see an escalation in crime and the numbers support that because if you look at our numbers, our non-violent crime is actually down considerably, but our violent crime is Super high, and so what that tells me is that nonviolent crime is escalating to the point of violence a lot of times. Um, so we've got to look at that. But the other thing is is this long term approach. The fact is is that Little Rock gets into this cycle about every ten to fifteen years. We'll have a crime bubble like we're having right now. Um, it happened during the '90s. Um, that's very famous. It also happened during the '2000s. I mean, it, it happens about every ten to fifteen years. We have this cycle of crime and the problem is, is that we always want to address the immediacy of the crime and try to reduce that, but we don't ever do anything to reduce the long-term cycle of the crime and some of these broader problems that happen. I mean, the reality is, is that kids don't have anything to do after school. Um, They don't have, the parks are bad. They don't have anywhere to go to, you know, to actually get rid of some energy on the weekends. You know, we don't have after-school tutoring. Um, Little Rock School District has declined considerably over the past 20 years, whereas whenever I was going to High school. I mean, you know, Central High was like this fantastic, amazing school. Little Rock School District was constantly rated one of the best in the nation. Now it's in the bottom twenty percent in the state. A lot of times, depending on the school. So we have to we have to work on reinvesting in schools too. We have to work on reinvesting in community initiatives to get kids, you know, give them an option. I mean, if they don't have any other option, then yeah, they're going to get you know, brought into areas of crime by older kids. And we have to give them some kind of option. We have to plant these seeds for long term. Otherwise, that 10 or 15 year cycle, if you think about it, that's just a new generation of kids coming up who didn't know any better and they're getting pulled into crime activities.
0: Well, and it's so interesting, too, because one of the things that, you know, one of the most fundamental roles of government is for us to feel safe as a community, right? And that's it. when you look at that, you know, I'm I'm hoping that every administration, every candidate that's running is keeping front of mind like, hey, we want to have that feeling as an overreaching feeling in Little Rock. Yes, we're safe. But you just brought up a very good point of the intricacy and in the, in, in the intertwined nature of crime and education. And I think you probably know this. And, and it's kind of a well-known fact that prison systems are, are really built around the level of reading uh, attributed with a certain mm-hmm. grade level. And so when you look at that, what what speaks to me as as a parent is that most of the time, and I think this also goes back to to neighborhoods, so forgive me for kind Mm -hmm. of adding it all together, but um, when it comes to the health of a person... When a desperate person is in a desperate situation, they're oftentimes going to make a desperate yes. decision. And so, if they don't have the opportunity to learn better and to do better, then you put them in a position like, how do I move forward? And so, with respect to that, knowing the number of children we have that are drug addicted, mm-hmm. num- the, I think we're 48th in the country when it comes to teacher pay. Yeah. Um, how do we invigorate people to get engaged with our education system, to, to devote themselves to those professions mm-hmm. that oftentimes feel like they're not rewarding financially, um, yeah. but can impact and change? A whole entire city and, and generation of children.
1: Yeah, and I mean, certainly from a city perspective, it's really really hard to impact things like teacher pay. Along with the conversation we're having about property um, and trying to incentivize infill, the other thing we're having about is this sort of um, tax incentive for folks like teachers. Um, I mean, we can't we can't as a city give teachers any more money. What we can do is reduce the amount of money we have to take. And so that's one thing where, you know, we're looking at exploring is some kind of grant program to where we can waive property taxes. Because if you're a teacher, you're essentially paying your own salary. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're paying in property taxes that goes back to pay your salary. So what we're looking at doing, I mean, which is
0: (laughs) – Well, and it's also like I know a lot of teachers who like – shout out to those teachers who I see all all the time at (laughs) soccer. Like they are – buying a lot of their own supplies. Yeah, they're they are. sort of, yeah, they're sort of entrepreneurs. <laughs> <laughs> they kind Either. of are.
1: Yeah. And so, I mean, it, it's one of those areas where I think that we can look at, okay, we can incentivize, because the other thing, we want those teachers to be involved in Little Rock. We want them to be a part of Little Rock. Um, you know,
0: it's They don't have time, like, Greg. <laughs> they don't have time. No,
1: they don't have time. But I mean, the reality is, is that, I mean, you know, teacher's job never stops. I mean, it never ends. I mean, regardless if you're, you know, an LRSD living teacher living here, or if you're living in North Little Rock or Cabot or wherever, I mean, your job is still ongoing. We want to make sure that they're choosing Little Rock. And so what we're looking at doing is for, and, and again, I can't control other communities, I can control Little Rock. And so what we're looking at doing is, you know, waiving, you know, creating a grant program where we can waive property taxes for teachers. I think that would help incentivize living here, because again, we don't have control over anybody else. We can incentivize living here and being a teacher here. And so I think that's one area we can look at. We can look at, you know, again, with these public-private partnerships, you know, let's let's look at creating a pool of classroom supplies where teachers can just go and shop and get what they need. Yeah, yeah. get what they need. I mean, that would be a great public-private partnership. I think we have the private entities here that we could pull that off. Uh, I think that there's things like that that we have to be it's real easy to say, yeah, we can't impact teacher pay. We can't impact, you know, the quality of life for teachers, but we can. Mm -hmm. We just got to be a little bit creative about it.
0: Well, and it goes back to like what you just said. I mean, what what a brilliant idea as far as like, you know, if I'm a teacher and I get a tax incentive to live in the neighborhood where my school is, then obviously I'm going to be closer to my school. I'm going to be more engaged with my school. And so is the neighborhood around me. So that's exciting to think about. So if you had a magic wand, like, what if you did? What if I handed you a magic wand? Yeah. And I said, okay, Greg, you can change anything, any code, any any rule in the city. You can add to it, subtract it, or just voila, change it. What would you pick from all the many things that you could change and just go, boop, I want that to change right now? What would you pick?
1: Man, that is a heck of a question and one that I've been thinking on for the whole time since I saw that question. And <laughs> Me too. <laughs> you know, it's, I, I, there's so many areas I don't have a good answer to it. Uh, I mean... Yes, I would love to, you know, be able to impact things like teacher pay. I would love to be able to impact, you know, a ton of other things. What I think it boils down to is that really and truly, and you saw this real hard during COVID, the city of Little Rock is still so much under the jurisdiction of the state. Uh, the state controls a lot of what a mayor can and cannot do. It controls a lot of what a municipality can and cannot do. And that relationship, I mean, and there's always this back and forth of, you know, during COVID, for example, we wanted to do a mask policy. Um, Our glorious Republican legislator, and if you can't see me, I'm rolling my eyes on that one, um, that that tried to restrict every ounce of things like that from the power of, you know, local entities, which is hilarious because they're built on giving local support and giving local rights, you know they restricted the city of Lura from being able to enact any kind of mask policy. They restricted us from doing all kinds of things. Um, ideally, I would love to create more power for lo- for municipalities to actually control what goes on in their city. Uh, and this is not just about the Republican legislature. They're just the most recent ones to enforce that. I mean, that goes back to whenever it was a Democratic legislator. It goes back even further than that. Um, you know, we as a state Constantly restrict what the cities can do, um, restrict how they can govern themselves. And ideally, I'd love to see that needle moved a little further to where, you know, we can do what's best for us, uh, because our community is different than everybody else. Like I said, our former government's a crazy mess compared to everything else. Uh, it's totally different. It's it's a bit of a unicorn in and of itself. Yeah. What's interesting um, about
0: that is I didn't know up until I was starting to do these mayoral mm-hmm. candidate races four years ago, I didn't know that that was the structure of Little Rock. And so as I was sitting across from candidates mm-hmm. trying to figure out what they were going to do when they became mayor, I was thinking, well, it'd be important if I knew how this ran. And so I thought yeah. maybe other people should know that too, because it is yeah. an interesting model. It's not something you see a lot in other cities.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, the, even the ability for us to change that requires several hoops for us to jump through, Um, some involving state to be able to change that particular change the form of government for what fits us best. I think that, you know, waving the magic wand of saying, okay, well let's move this needle on what, what, us as a city and what other cities across because I also talked to other city leaders across the state you know what can we do as a city to impact our community for what's best for us not just what's best for the state as a whole because you know we're different than Fayetteville Fayetteville's different than us Springdale's way different than everybody you know Bentonville's different Benton's different El is different we're all different and we all have different needs in our community we all have different dynamics that happen but We're kind of bound by this overarching, you know, state rule that, you know, doesn't allow us to make too many changes to our own citizenry and to our own municipality of what's best for us individually.
0: Yeah, that's a good point and a great answer to the question. And so as we start to wrap up, I'm going to bring up a, bring a little fun to the table because we've okay. been talking about very serious matters. And for the record, we did make it into the Chris Stapleton, Arkansas song, and I think it was for barbecue. So that probably shouts out to the vein of good reviews on barbecue food. <laughs> but anyway. I have no clue what you're talking about so right now. So Chris Stapleton, have you not heard the song, has yeah. a song called Arkansas. And if you listen to it on your way home, he says, I stop in Little Rock on the way home to get some barbecue. Mm-hmm. And so it's like that was the thing that he claimed for he picked all these different areas like going through the Ozark mountains and sitting on top of the world. And then he's like in some barbecue. And I think he was talking about Sims. So it's pretty cool. Or Slim's barbecue down on their new location. So anyways, I say that to say, what's your favorite place? And you, I know you have a lot of people in the restaurant industry, so I'm not going to ask you to specifically pick out somebody's name, but of food, if you had to choose and you're coming to Little Rock for the very first time and you got to send somebody to your favorite restaurant for an out of towner to try in Little Rock, what would you choose? Man, that
1: is a great question. Uh, and I get asked like, what's my favorite restaurant constantly. And it's like one of those, well, I mean, if it's, you know, know, I mean, the reality is, is it's, what are you looking for? I think there's a lot of places that do some great things, um, two people. And I'll, I'll narrow this down to two for you because that's the best I can do. Um, (laughs) you know, I think, I think the question is what's What's unique? I mean, what can we do that's unique where you just can't find anywhere else? Um, and so I, I think of two places a lot of times with that. And I mean, there's tons of other places that I love. But Sims is one of them. They're right down the road from my house. And I love running down there. Mm-hmm. Love Sims to death. Um, we've got Table 28 uh, with uh, mm-hmm. Chef Scott Rains mm-hmm. and Chalbachi uh, with <sighs> Jeffrey Owen. And so what I, I like about, <laughs> what I love about both of them, um, and I think what's unique about them, and what's uniquely Little rock about them, which is what I I think is has to be the ultimate. I mean, we can't just say, okay, well, yeah, we do a good job on this, but you can go find it somewhere else better. I don't think you can find what they do better anywhere else, and I think that's what's unique about it. Um, if you've never had the chance, it's it's going to run you some money, but if you never had the chance, you know, call Scott Rains, you know two weeks in advance, give him a little bit of time because the more time you give him, the better he is. And say, hey, I just want you to throw me together a, uh, a dinner. I don't care what it is. I want a tasting menu, just do whatever. Um, Scott's really great in taking cuts of protein um, that are in a unique way, uh, unique cuts of protein that you maybe not had before, things like that. It's just an overall creative approach and he's a brilliant chef. Um, Jeffrey Owen's kind of the opposite. I mean, he he does, he takes, you know, kind of, st- standard cuts of protein, standard, you know, dishes and elevates them to a new level. Uh, And I think that's great. I love going. I, my wife, I drive my wife crazy because we go into these places and I'm always ordering tasting menus just because I don't, I just want the chef to bring me out, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. I think those two do a great job, both on their tasting menus. So it's it's fabulous
0: well it's funny because that's actually a lot of times people that go to restaurants with me laugh because the person comes to the table they're like what do you want i'm like you work here you yeah. tell me what i want you have to eat the same thing every day so you're gonna know what's the best thing here at this restaurant so yeah if
1: there's a tasting menu i'm ordering it uh mm-hmm. we just we went to vegas for our 15th anniversary um, yeah yeah uh so and that was we didn't like the goal was not to gamble at all or anything we just wanted to go eat i mean that was <laughs> everywhere we went and ate, i was like well, let's just get a tasting menu yeah well i've just rolls her eyes she's like what if i don't like it and i'm like yeah. good like then yeah. you got to to try something new.
0: Yeah, well, that was fun, because I moved here from Las Vegas. And I will tell you that I didn't expect the food scene to be as amazing and incredible as it is. And over time, it gets better and better and richer and richer. And so it's really cool to see and be part of. And if you haven't taken the Little Rock food tour, and you're listening in for the first time, come to Little Rock, we can definitely show you some good places to eat.
1: Yeah. And I mean, speaking of Vegas, I mean, and I know you're trying to wrap up here. I mean, yeah, one of the cool saying? things is, is that I mean, you know, so we went to um, Bizarre Meat by Ho- Jose Andreas. Um, the Little Rock connections there are Unbelievable! Really? I mean, there's so many people who came through that organization that have been working with Jose. And there's plenty of people here in Little Rock still working with Jose. Um that, Wait, at
0: World Central Kitchen? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Because so, yeah,
0: he works with Kyle and Scott. Yeah, and, like yeah, all, and Kyle's yeah, doing all yeah, okay. kinds
1: of amazing things. Yes. He's, he, we just sat down a Shout few weeks Founders. ago uh, <laughs> to Kyle Pounders, who does Excaliburger. Um, yeah. And he's got some of these crazy, cool entrepreneurial ideas that I, he's trying to plan and come. in. Don't worry, we
0: won't say anything on air. <laughs>
1: It's really good. yeah but it's it's really <laughs> cool and I think that it's it's creative enough um, to be amazing and move the needle forward but not so much that it's just a wild hair that's never going to get implemented and I think mm-hmm. that's always the balance with entrepreneurship is trying to find you know an idea that moves us forward but not so wild that it's never going to get implemented and I think that that's you know uh, being an entrepreneur myself I know I've gone way far off on the deep end on one of those and you know it doesn't work out very well so
0: yeah well I can relate so I've been there before and I'm super grateful to have you on the show it's been uh, um, exciting to see you step out and take this opportunity as your own grab the bull by the horns I'm excited to watch the rest of the race and I'll be staying in tune and and watching you kind of take each one as it comes and see how this turns Mm -hmm. out Um, if you do end up winning just give me a shout and I'll tell you all the things that I want to do no I'm just kidding (laughs) no 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 please I mean you know and that's suggestions are welcome right (laughs) you
1: know that's one of those things where I think that as a Leader, you have to be open to suggestions. You have to have an open mind. I think if you just surround yourself with people who think the same way as you, you're never going to move anything forward. So I think that, you know part of it is reaching out and taking ideas that you know, you know maybe I I would listen to you anyway. But I mean maybe I wouldn't you know listen to you and hearing you and taking account. It may not mean that I'm going to do everything you want. But I think being informed how other people think and stepping outside your bounds, it was, you know, kind of back to the earlier question about how do we bridge this cultural divide? And I think a lot of it is just stepping outside your comfort zone and listening to people who aren't you, don't look like you, don't act like you, don't think like you, don't have the same background as you. And honestly, setting and hearing what their ideas are and taking it to heart not just. You know, looking at your phone the whole time while you're talking to them or something like that. You know,
0: you actually got to listen. Yeah. Well, speaking of, I've been listening to you, and I bet your phone's been blowing up. So, real quickly before we get off air, would you do me a favor and let the voters know where they can get more information about your campaign and where they can find and try to connect with you if they're wanting to.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Get on uh, Facebook, Twitter. Um, look up uh, Greg Henderson. I'm there on both of them. You can go to jgreghenderson.com. Uh, J is my first name, so we're not gonna uh, we're not gonna get it too much into that. But uh, you know, it's the domain I can get. So. Um, get got all the information there i've got several talking points but also you know shoot me an email i'm happy to answer any questions shoot me a facebook message my email is greg at rockcityeats.com real simple to remember um you know i'm not gonna give up my phone number here but you know it's (laughs) not hard to find either uh but yeah i mean let me i'm happy to answer questions i really am i want to be an open and approachable candidate
0: Perfect. Well, you heard it here first on The Block Talk. I am Jamie Taylor. and here with Greg Henderson for the first of three mayoral podcast episodes that you'll see over the coming weeks. So get out there and vote. If you need more information on Greg and his campaign, you can reach out on his website or reach out to us here on The Block Talk. We'll be happy to connect you. Greg, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Jamie. Little Rock, we're out.